You know, and we often use this word iconic, and we're describing things that, you know, often the way we use the word is you know, iconic. It's like something is classic. We often mean uh, that a band or an artist or a public figure or a person from history or uh, a particular song or a film or a story. You know, it's well known. It's so widely known. It's iconic. That's the way we use the word today. And um, we're going to read a text in Psalm chapter 23, which is iconic. When I say iconic, I don't mean it in that way. That's the way we use the word today. It's so widely known. Most people uh, who uh, have heard Psalm 23 are going to recognize it because it's so iconic. Classic. That's not the way I'm going to use it. I'm going to use the word iconic in its uh, original form, which comes from the Latin word iconicus. And I thought, you know, should I really go into this? I mean, is it too early to get into etymology? And I kept hearing the words of the great Captain Holt in my head saying, nobody cares about etymology. I thought, it's pretty early to get into etymology. But iconicus means, the classical sense of the word iconic is, it reflects the character of the source with mirror-like precision. That's what it meant in the Latin to be iconic. It is reflecting the source with mirror-like precision. Psalm 23 is an iconic psalm because it reflects the character, the love, the nature, the grace of God, of our God, with mirror-like precision. In the 1800s, there was a preacher named Charles Spurgeon, and this is what he said of the iconic Psalm 23, which we're going to read in a second. Psalm 23 has charmed more griefs to rest than all the philosophy of the world. It has remanded more felon thoughts, black doubts, and thieving sorrows to their dungeon than there are sands on the seashore. It has comforted the poor, sunk courage into the army of the disappointed, and poured consolation into the heart of the sick. It has consoled widows in their pinching griefs and orphans in their loneliness, by it, ghastly hospitals have been illuminated, and those dying have died easier. It has visited the prisoner and broken his chains. Psalm chapter 23, starting in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You set a a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. Now, verse 1 starts right out of the gate with a fantastic claim. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, I have to stop right here to help the kids, because when I was in grade 3, I did not understand what this meant. Nobody bothered to explain it to me. I remember being in grade 3, and my teacher, I'm going to call him Mr. H., read this, I'm never going to forget it because it's just burned into my mind. He read this verse and he had a particularly breathy voice whenever he read the Bible. 
He didn't always talk that way, but whenever he read the Bible, his voice got very breathy. And I'll never forget it. I was sitting there as a little kid in grade three, and I heard this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And as he paused, I sat there, and my little grade three mind was like, but I do want him. I don't understand. Now, many of you kids, you might already know what this means, because to be smarter than me in grade three is not difficult. But to, 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 to be for want is an old English way of saying, I am needy and uncared for. I'm in want. And so what this text says right out of the gate, kids, if you look in your notes, it's a bold declaration that says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. That's how this begins. And it's pretty remarkable that the Lord would call himself a shepherd because in the ancient world, being a shepherd was not something that kids aspired to do. They didn't have posters in their room and they're like, one day I'm going to be like Jedediah. He's a fantastic shepherd. Oh, to be a shepherd one day? No. In the ancient world, if you were a shepherd, that meant you got the worst job. They didn't give it to the oldest son because it was a position of honor. right? David had 11, 11 other brothers. And guess who was the shepherd? David. Why? Because it was the worst job. Right? So it's pretty remarkable that the God of the cosmos would stoop, allow himself to be described as a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Because the God of the cosmos does stoop in his radical grace to care, to love, to save, to guide. He's a shepherd. And then the verse also says this. It says, he's my shepherd. That's pretty important. Because notice how God is being described. Not vast, transcendent, impersonal way, right? The Lord is the shepherd of the universe, you know, like Voltron or something. That's not how he's described. The shepherd of the universe. My shepherd. God is vast. God is transcendent. And he's also extremely personal. He's both of those things. He's God of creation. is my shepherd. And the reason why this is so important, I think, for us to rest on and think about is because sheep weren't wild. Sheep were purchased and David is reflecting on something he's owned. Sheep were purchased at a price. There's a deep sense of belonging here as we read Psalm 23 because we were purchased at a price. Because our great shepherd purchased us by giving himself up as a sacrificial lamb. David is the king. And yet, even though he's the king, he's contemplating his need for guidance. He's contemplating his need for shepherd. Our hearts want to be king. I think there's some wisdom in us pausing and contemplating our need for shepherd, our need for guidance. Not so much do we need guidance, but what is guiding us? Not so much do we need a shepherd, but what is our shepherd and who is our shepherd and who is leading and guiding us? David is king, but he knows he's not self-sufficient. The Lord is my shepherd. We want to be king. And I think there's wisdom as pausing and reflecting on the fact that we're not self-sufficient. And just as the shepherd takes care of his sheep, God takes care of all of our needs. And just like a shepherd leads their sheep down carefully chosen paths, the light of God's word guides our path. And just as shepherds guard their sheep and they protect them from danger and death, God has protected us from danger and eternal death by giving us the grace of eternal life. And he's done this through Jesus Christ the good shepherd who came as a sacrificial lamb. 
In verse 2, it says, that, what does this good shepherd do? It says, he makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Still in the Hebrew is the word manucha. And that word means place of rest. So our shepherd is leading the sheep into this place of rest. These, the waters of rest. That's the image that it's kind of conjuring up in your mind. It's inviting that picture. He takes all of our anxiety and he gives us peace. He takes all of our worry and he's offering security. The waters of rest. And the implications of this is that sheep can't live at rest. On their own, they will never live at rest. And they can't live at rest because they don't know where to find rest. They need a shepherd will guide them and lead them into rest. So all of humanity, this is the human condition. This is a picture of the human condition, of somebody looking for a shepherd who will lead their heart into rest. And so they, they find all kinds of shepherds, much, much smaller, much, much more impotent than the great shepherd leading us into great rest. But this is the picture. On their own, sheep are not going to find rest because they are nervous, anxious animals. A couple of years ago, the BBC... Uh, put out a story, and I've shared this before, but I'm going to share it again because it just boggles my mind. It's a story about sheep in the UK. There's these sheep grazing on a hill in the UK, and one of the sheep gets spooked, and it anxiously runs off the cliff face to its death. And 399 other sheep follow it, and they run to their death. But wait, there's more. So now there's 400 dead sheep at the bottom of the cliff face, and that big fluffy mattress of death broke the fall for 1,100 more. This, is, this was on the BBC. 1,500 sheep. Because sheep left to their own devices are nervous, anxious animals. The Lord is my shepherd, mine. I lack nothing. He leads me. What is leading you? What is leading your heart? It says, he leads me. We can look to all sorts of little mini-messiahs to lead us, but they're not very good. This is, the, this is the good news of the gospel, the picture of the shepherd leading us, our hearts into peace. And the reason why the sheep all went over that cliff is because, in the first place, is because they are in a dangerous place because sheep are led around by their stomachs. That's how sheep die all the time. Because they don't know where to find the, the sustenance they need. And so they look up and they see a little bit of fluffy piece of green up on, a, on the edge of a cliff. And they're like, no, that looks, that looks good right there. You know, they don't think to themselves, that could kill me, I might die. It's like, no, that's going to be good. And they fall to their deaths. It happens all the time. The sheep don't know where to find, find the rest. But our shepherd knows where to lead us to find the rest. So we don't fall off the metaphorical, metaphorical cliff face continually in our souls. Um, and finding ourselves in constant kind of solical calamity all the time. In verse 3 it says, He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. The paths of righteousness, the right way. There's this leading, there's this guiding. But it's not just actions. We have, we're North Americans. We're very pragmatic. We want to look at this and go, Ah, the Lord will lead me in the right way. Well, that's good to know. Because tomorrow I've got to go into the office and I've got to make a decision. I'm going to deal with file, file number one or file number two. The blue folder or the red folder? We, that's the kind of guidance that we want. And, that, that, and I'm not saying that the Lord doesn't providentially guide and lead um, uh, wisdom decisions. What I'm trying to say is, if we reduce the text to mean that, we're going to leave very suffocated, anxious lives as sheep. 
Because how are you going to know when you can't open the Bible that says, and find the verse that says, open the red folder? I mean, you can't find it. That's a very nerve-wracking way to live. But look at what it says. Not just he leads me in the right way. The words before it say, he restores my soul, leads me in the right way. This is a heart-level, soul-level recalibration. Like taking a, like, like your heart is like a guitar where every morning you wake up and it is out, that thing is out of tune. And he is retuning us as we come into the rest of him that our lives, our very lives are in his hand. And this is the picture here. You see, the good news of being led by this shepherd in the, in the right way is because sheep don't know where their next meal is and sheep don't need to know where their next meal is. Sheep just need to know where their shepherd is. Because the shepherd knows where everything they need is. In the ancient world, and in many countries today, sheep are constantly led, they're constantly on the move, because what's lush today might not be lush tomorrow. Something that's providing for your, you know, your family today might not provide for your family tomorrow. Your health might be with you today, it might not be with you tomorrow. The human experience is feeding on things that dry up. Study world history. And it's, it's a story of nations feeding on particular things that end up drying up. And they've got to move and shift and change and evolve. This is the picture of what it is to be human. And the good news of the gospel is, while all of the things, the physical uh, world around you, is shifting and moving and something that's lush and green today might dry up tomorrow, you have a shepherd who leads and guides your soul into great rest. He can lead and guide you into what it is that you need. You lack nothing. Not just, in the, not just in the sense that you have a loving God who will provide for your physical needs, which he will, but that you have a loving God who is providing predominantly for your soulical needs so you don't start worshiping the green stuff that's dry tomorrow. And so this is the good news of, for the sheep, is the shepherd knows precisely where to lead them, precisely where to go. You don't know what's going to happen in your life tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen in your children's life tomorrow. Those of us who have children, we all want the best for our children. And we're constantly in a place of like, you know, trying not to worry about the future of our children. This is very good news. You don't need to know what tomorrow holds for you or your children. What you need to know is where your shepherd is. And that's where you direct your heart and the heart of your children. Is the good news of the gospel of gathering every seven days to be recalibrated to this. Because nobody in here is sanctified enough to just be like, well, you know what, I'm just, all of my own, I'm just going to kind of trust in the Lord and I'm not going to start trusting in this little patch of green grass or that one. All of us have hearts that are prone to wander. That's why the Bible calls us sheep. Verse 4 goes on to say, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this valley of the shadow of death, this is symbolic of a dark season of life. Right? It's not death, it's a shadow of death. It's casting a fearful shadow. This is a pervasive threat that is looming in your life. Provoking fear. It's that kind of thing that keeps you awake or when you're driving and the radio isn't on and you're left with your own thoughts, that your mind goes there and your heart goes there and you're worrying about it. The shadow of death. And so, under the shepherd's leading, the good news is that we're all walking through these dark times. We don't sit in the dark times and live in the dark and... and, and, uh, 
and die in the dark times. He walks us through these dark times. You may have seen, I'm sorry, you may have been in a long season of struggle. You might have been through one of these valleys where it seems like your whole life is just one big, long, dark valley. And there's no end in sight to this thing. And I want you to notice the promise in verse 4. It's the presence of the shepherd. It's the presence of the shepherd that gives comfort in the valley. Guidance through the valley. And eradicates fear of the valley. The promise isn't come to Jesus. No valleys! Eradicates the fear of the valley. And so... We have no fear of this valley of death because united to Jesus Christ by grace and faith alone, he has taken the reality of death. And if Jesus Christ has taken the reality of death and all you and I are really dealing with are the shadows of death and those fearful threats that are looming and yet we have a good shepherd who will guide us, lead us, provide for us and ultimately has saved us already from death itself. This is what recalibrates our heart into great rest. Death in its substance has been removed, and so only the shadow remains. Again, I'm going to borrow from Charles Spurgeon. He said it like this. If there's a shadow, there must be light somewhere. And there is. Death stands by the side of the highway in which we all have to travel. And the light of heaven is shining upon death. And so it casts a shadow across our path. Let us therefore rejoice that there is light beyond. Nobody is afraid of a shadow, for a shadow cannot stop your path even for a moment. The shadow of a dog cannot bite. The shadow of a sword cannot kill. The shadow of death cannot destroy. All of us have these things, pervasive threats looming, cause for worry and anxiety. And this text says, the Lord is your shepherd. You lack nothing. He will lead you and he will guide you and restore your soul. And yea, though you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil, for his rod and the staff are there to comfort and guide you. And if you've seen shepherds using the rods and the staff, they are predominantly nudging and tapping as gently as possible because sheep are nervous, anxious animals. They are tapping as gently and lovingly and gingerly as possible to lead those sheep. That's how sheep are led. You don't see shepherds with sheep. Yeah! Because I promise you, all 1,500 are going over the cliff. That's not how they're led. The Lord is our shepherd, good shepherd. By his loving grace, guiding and loving and constantly drawing your heart away from these mini messiahs, these insufficient little shepherds that you're hoping are going to guide your heart into hope and leading us into a place of tremendous peace. The shepherd's presence eliminates the fear of the valley. In verse 5, there's a huge shift in the metaphor. A massive shift in verse 5. Up until now, the picture is we're sheep and we're grazing. Then you get to verse 5 and the picture totally changes. And now we're sitting at a table, eating, celebrating. There's a table there. I don't know a lot about sheep, but I do know they don't eat at tables. So there's a shift in the literary metaphor. What's going on? Unpack this. This is beautiful. It's amazing. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. First, the good shepherd is portrayed as guiding and providing. And now he's fellowshipping. He's fellowshipping and he's uplifting. He's not a shepherd that's far away with a, a, with a 20-foot pole, you know, 
tapping the sheep. He's with the sheep celebrating. Look at this. This is amazing. In the midst of the valley, where's the table? Right? In the midst of the valley, in the epicenter of your trouble, in the shadow and the darkness of the threat of death, God looks on his children and he says, who's hungry? That's verse 5. While the trouble in your life is casting a shadow over your heart, while the trouble in your life is threatening to suck the joy out of your soul like the cold drizzle of a winter sky, while all of this is happening, while it's threatening to riddle your mind with anxiety, give you insomnia in your soul, God looks at you right in that moment, right in that darkness, right in that trouble, and he says, you know, you look like you could use something to eat right about now. That's verse 5. You know what? We're going to stop right here. What? Right here? Yeah, we're going to just stop right here. Right in the middle of all of this war zone. We're just going to have a picnic in the war zone right here. That's verse 5. Verse 5 does not say, And God takes his children out of the valley, and he sets them up on a mountaintop so they can enjoy their lunch. No. That's not the text. That's not how it works. He says, right while everything's catching on fire and blowing up around you, let's just set up a table. We just need to have some lunch right now. Do you see this picture? Oh my goodness. Trouble is raging like the final battle in the Lord of the Rings. And you're like, pass the pepper. Man, thank you. Uh, it just, wow. It's a big battle. You ought to yell, pass the pepper. Lots going on. This is the good news of God's grace in full display. Jesus Christ lived the life you should have lived, but you're not living it. Jesus Christ died the sacrificial death so that your death is not final. Jesus Christ took his righteous record and now through grace and through faith in him alone, he imputes this, right, this righteous record to you. It is yours. You are united to the good shepherd. And because that is true, God is continually moving toward your heart in the midst of trouble to eradicate your fear and worry with the extravagance of his grace. Psalm 23 is a comedy this is an ancient literary comedy. Because by, by classical definition, a comedy starts low and ends high. A Greek tragedy, well, I mean, I know this is Hebrew, but just follow me, because we're more familiar with you know, Greek tragedies in terms of uh, 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 poems and plays and these kinds of things. Tragedies start high and end low. Right? Romeo and Juliet, it's a tragedy. Because it's very high, they're in love, and it ends low. They're dead. The Bible, Psalm 23, is a comedy. You're in the middle of trouble. You have, no reason, you have no reason to have peace whatsoever. There is nothing going on good in your life, in your heart, or in your mind. And in the middle of all that, God goes, you know, I'm just, we're just going to set up a table right now. Here, let me pour you a drink. So much that your cup is overflowing. I mean, this is how much we're going to party in the middle of this celebration. And I don't mean that you stick your head in the sand and you kind of, you know, you know, uh, confess it's going to be good until it manifests itself in the physical world in a sort of deistic nonsense. That's not what this is. This is a place to sl- stop and recalibrate on who your shepherd is. The goodness of his grace in the midst uh, uh, when all hell is breaking loose and you have no reason to have peace about it. This is what this text promises you. It's so good. And so, life is full of dark valleys. If you're a human, that's what you've got to be up for. Regardless of your worldview, life is full of dark valleys. Nobody has a valley-free life. The Christian life is full of dark valleys. But our God sets up a table in the middle of every valley. 
And therein is the difference of going through the pain and suffering that is the human experience. Is that we have a place to stop and rest and celebrate. It is a radical promise. It is amazing. In, in uh, verse 6, it goes on to say, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That word surely in the Hebrew, surely goodness, it could also be interpreted only. Only goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord. Only that. Well, that's a pretty bold claim. And you look around at your physical world and go, is that really true? Yes. Why? Only goodness and mercy. That second word, mercy. Mercy in the Hebrew is not like, oh, I feel so sorry for you. I'm just having mercy on you. I'm just a pity. I'm pitying you. That uh, goodness and mercy construction in the Hebrew language is covenantal language. It's a promise language. It's a way of saying only God's steadfast, unchanging, unstoppable love will constantly be forever moving toward you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Only that, moving towards your heart, moving to recalibrate and renew your mind, moving to alleviate this insomnia of your soul. Only that. This is the promise of God coming towards us. This is the, the, the powerful picture. It's a bold claim. I mean, what if the dark valley that we're in is our own doing? I mean, it's not like a thing of life. We did something dumb. What about that? What about, what about the things that you and I are dealing with that if we're honest about it are a result of our own sin? The sin of our own hearts, the sin of our own mind, the action that manifested went through our hands. And so now we're in some sort of a situation and the valley we in, we created the valley. We didn't stumble upon the valley. Does Psalm 23 have some sort of exit clause for the shepherd so that he is exempt from giving grace to the dumb sheep that swan dive into the valley of the shadow of death? Well, I have good news, church. No. First of all, when did Jesus save you? The Bible says... He saved you while you were swan diving into the valley of death. That's when he saved us. Romans 5, 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were, while we were dumb sheep running headlong over the cliff. That's when he came towards us. So if that's when he saved us, it doesn't follow gospel logic that when you get yourself in a valley that was of your own doing, that he then now abandons you. Because it wasn't your great sheep behavior that saved you in the first place. And so, as we find here, this radical, compassionate nature of God on display, revealed with mirror-like, iconic precision, the steadfast, unchanging, unstoppable love of God is towards you forever. Because the good shepherd offered himself up as a sacrificial lamb for you. Jesus was your scapegoat. He carried away your sin. So that you could be carried through your valley by God's grace. This is the great promise. The Lamb of God has redeemed wayward sheep. So that we could dwell in the house of God forever. We were all wayward and he saved us all. Dwelling in the house of God forever, that's been God's plan from the beginning. I mean, that is, dwelling with God is one of the massive story arcs that spans the entire Bible. In the garden, he creates us. Why? 
to dwell with us. He's walking with Adam in the cool of the day. And then after Adam sins, what does God do? He makes a promise to come and restore everything. Why? Because he wants to dwell with his people. He created us so he could dwell with his people. He promised to redeem us so he could dwell with his people. In the Old Testament, he condescends himself into a little box behind a dusty curtain surrounded by his dysfunctional family, 12 of them, in the desert. Why? So he could dwell with his people. And then what does he do in the New Testament? He condescends himself again, and he's born as one under the law, super embarrassing, incarnates himself in Jesus Christ, surrounds himself with 12 more dysfunctional people, his 12 disciples. Do you see a connection? Why? So he could dwell with his people. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as you go on through here, talking about, as you go on through John chapter 1, to see what Jesus did, the Word is tabernacled. The word of God came and dwelt among us. He tabernacled with us. He dwelt with us. What's going to happen? Spoiler alert. Revelation 21, 22 at the end of the Bible. The good shepherd comes again. And he restores everything. And he raises us from death itself. Why? To dwell with his people. From the beginning to dwell with his people. In the desert to dwell with his people. Through Christ to dwell with his people. The the restoration of all things to dwell with his people. Church, this is such good news for you and for me in the darkness that is our lives, in those seasons that you have to face when you go tomorrow and you wake up and you deal with what you have to deal with, that through the darkness, through the trouble, your God is setting up for you a table for you to stop and rest and have your soul in peace, to know that he is with you, that he loves you. God's goodness and steadfast covenant-keeping love will follow you all the days of your life and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray.